We are continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter. So we're now in chapter 4 in the book of 1 Peter. And you know, the reality is there are some in this world who look around, look at this world, and they shake their heads. They tisk and say the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Which, by the way, does anybody have any idea what that phrase really means or where it came from? Any clue? Hell in a handbasket? Have you guys ever heard that phrase before? That idiom? I use it, and I've never understood it, so I actually looked it up. And I looked up the phrase, hell in a handbasket, and every, everything that every researcher that I read, they said, we don't really know either. It just somehow started becoming popular. They believe it had something to do maybe with like a, like a guillotine and, you know, when somebody gets, you know, dies and handbasket. Maybe that, they thought maybe just because of the alliteration, it's catchy. But I, nobody has any clue where that phrase comes from. It started coming around in the late 1700s in printed material, really got popularized in the 1800s. So it's been around for a little while. But honestly, this idea of the world going to hell in a handbasket has been around for even longer than that. They're, they're honestly, I, at times I can see why people feel this way. By nature, I'm an extremely optimistic person. But even I can see why people can look around and feel like there's not much hope left. I can see why some people have this kind of theology and mentality of, we're on a sinking ship. Let's just get as many people on a lifeboat before the ship goes down. But let me tell you something. That's not at all what God says, and not at all what we're called to do. And I have such hope, like I said earlier. In light of Charlottesville, in light of the world that we see, in light of suffering, in light of pain, in light of issues that we see all around the world, I still have hope. You see, God's called us to advance his kingdom here. The theology is not one of the world is going to hell in a handbasket, let's go ahead and save a few. It's not one of the we're on a sinking ship, let's get as many on the lifeboat as possible. No, our theology, what we believe the scripture teaches us, is that we are called to be instruments of his kingdom advancements here and now. And we're called to transform the world around us. And honestly, I have such hope. I have hope for two main reasons. One, I have hope because Jesus rose from the dead and is alive and I know is accomplishing his purpose. But I also have hope because I get to live life with all of you. Anytime I just want to say forget it, the world's messed up, people are messed up, everybody's selfish, everybody's greedy, sin is going to win, I look at how incredible God's people are. The way you live the way you forgive, share, love, welcome. The way we are diverse, but still live in intentional community. The way you know how imperfect you are and messed up we are, we can even be to each other, that still choose to live in loving community. You guys living out the reality of Christ's resurrection and mission gives me hope. Hope that the Holy Spirit is empowering us and hope that his kingdom has come and will advance. Thank you. I believe that's one of the purposes and reasons of gathering together and worship on Sunday. Right? Some people think, I don't need other believers. I can do this Christian thing. This kind of Western Christian idea of my own personal walk with Jesus. Can I tell you, one of the reasons I truly believe, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons God calls us together today and on Sunday mornings to worship him is because, can I tell you, you encourage me. And we encourage each other. You give us, we give each other hope. 
Hope that even though we're different, we can still love each other. Hope that, that says that even though we're called to different spheres of life, demographically, socioeconomically, we're different, that you're still intentionally living on mission. You're choosing to love. You're, you're out there in the world and living in such a manner that people are like, whoa, what's going on? That you're giving me hope. And can I tell you something, people? I need it. Because we see the news like we saw last night. And you start losing a little hope. Even the forever optimist that I am, you know, and my wife will make fun of me because I am that guy. I'll be honest with you. I always believe that the coin's going to flip the way I want it to flip. And I always believe that everything's going to always work out for me. And I'm that guy. My wife, she calls herself not a pessimist, but a realist. And she contrasts for me, but I'm, I am, I believe it, an optimist. But even an optimist like me looks around the world, looks around the news, reads social media, and we start losing hope. But then I come here on Sunday morning, and I look at the way you live your lives and the way you love and forgive, and I have hope. Thank you. Because I need that. I think we all need that, don't we? We have hope, honestly, because we live as different people in this world. Albert Einstein has this quote. I love this quote. I'm going to share it with you. It says this. The reality is our living... Or, sorry, Albert Einstein has this quote. It says this. A question that sometimes drives me hazy, am I or are the others crazy? I'll say that again. This is Albert Einstein. And he says this. The question that sometimes drives me hazy is am I or are the others crazy? I love that quote. In verse 4 of the passage we just read, it says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. To the world, the way in which you behave will not just look different, it will look crazy. This word says they are surprised. It's a word that's really quite strong in the original Greek. It's they will consider you absolutely bizarre. You will surprise them. You will shock them because your behavior is bizarre. You'll be looked upon as extremely strange, going against nature even. As a result, people will heap abuse on you because they will think you're crazy. See, what Peter is saying to you as elect exiles, this is what we discovered we are, as elect exiles, a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal people, a priesthood, people belonging to God, living in this world, if you live the way that we've called you to live, if you live in the manner that you're called to live, people are going to be surprised by your lives. Last week we talked about, do people ask you for the reason for the hope in you? And so Peter is saying, if you live like that, you're going to surprise people. They're going to look at you and they're going to think, you're crazy. Because fundamentally, the way you work and the way you live, the way you live life is just fundamentally different from the priorities and perspectives and the worldview that the rest of the world has. There's just something different about you. Living with a kingdom mindset will surprise people. In other words, it's so strange to them that they will think you crazy. And they'll have to ask, why? They'll come up to you and say, your, your lives look so crazy. What is the hope in you? When you suffer, you rejoice. That's crazy. You welcome and love people who don't look the same as you. That's crazy. Why do you do it? What's the hope in you? There are two ways in this section of Peter that we just see that two ways and manners in which to live that surprise people. Two, two ways to live in such a manner that may surprise people, astonish people, and make them think you're crazy. 
And these are the two ways. Number one, by your abstaining from sin. And two, by the way you love and serve others. So that's one, by the way you abstain from sin. And two, by the way you love and serve others. Abstaining from sin. I love this in this In the first verse, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. You guys, earlier I mentioned how it says gird up in 1 Peter. You know, it says gird up. Literally, the idea of girding up is when people were wearing robes, it's not easy to do any kind of physical activity. It's not easy to run when you're wearing robes and sandals. So what they would do is to gird up is they would take the robes and put it inside the thing that girds you, the belt, so that you can run. This is the same kind of language. It's literally saying gird up, arm up, put on your sword and your shield. It's a little further. It's a little more kind of militaristic than even girding up. It is saying be intentional. Arm yourself for this, with this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This word thinking is actually more of a concept of thought. It literally says, this is the word for thought, it's to have the same thought. It means that the fact that Jesus suffered in the body. So what it's telling you is arm yourselves, arm yourselves, this militaristic arming of yourself, girding up with the knowledge that Jesus suffered for you. You see, one, how do you abstain from sin? The first way you abstain from sin is by remembering the work of Jesus. It says, arm yourselves. Don't just believe it. Arm yourself with it. This is an incredible word. It shows you that there's a whole lot more to live in the Christian life than just believing something. Just to be blunt, if you have a weapon in your room and you say, oh, I have a weapon. I actually have a sword in my bedroom. Um, When I was in college, true story. When I was in college, all my roommates, four of us, we all bought swords one day. Thought that was a good activity to do. And every once in a while, we would kind of go outside and kind of like practice and train with them. A wonderful sight, I'm sure people would be like, what in the world are they doing? But we would all have swords, and we'd actually, this is true, because we had nothing of value, we're college students. We would pray for somebody to break in. Because all we wanted to do is we wanted to come running out with swords in our hands, being like, ah! And... I know, it's this terrible prayer, and it's a terrible situation, but this is the way we thought. But here's the thing. Let's say you have a weapon, and you have a weapon in your room, but the reality is when you need it, if it's not on you, what worth is it, right? When you become a Christian, you get all these facts. You may believe them. You may rejoice in them, but it's another thing to arm yourself with them. Remember it says that you're arming yourself for verse 2. Verse 2 says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What Jesus is saying is here, how do you abstain from sin? First, you remember the work of Jesus. You arm yourself with this truth that Jesus died for you. How do you abstain from sin? Is that you arm yourself with the gospel. You are arming yourself to be able to live according to the will of God in spite of opposition, in spite of anything that comes your way if you arm yourself with truth. Let me give you a, a couple examples of this. You may know God loves you and that his approval um, is alone is all you need. Yet if you face criticism, rejection, do you lash out or get terribly depressed? You may know God approves of you, but you haven't been armed with it. If you're armed with it, you can respond positively. You can respond peacefully. You know, this past week, just to be completely honest with you, I was criticized a couple times. And I'm one of those guys who struggles with that. You know, I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. 
And when people kind of like say bad things about me, I get really hurt and I cry inside, you know, like a little baby. I get in the fetal position. And it affects me honestly more than it should. I really had to arm myself before entering into certain situations where I knew I would, could partake in such attacks verbally. I had to arm myself with the gospel, knowing that, honestly, I'm much worse than what anybody could say to me. But I'm so much more loved and esteemed and called than what anything, anybody could ever imagine. I had to arm myself with the gospel of saying, you know what, anything you can say to me, I know I'm worse than that. You have no clue how messed up I am. You can say whatever you want, I'm worse than that. But you know what, you can say whatever you want, I know how radically loved I am. And I know absolutely that I'm called beyond, in a way that's even bigger or better than I could ever imagine. That's what it means to arm yourself with this. This arm yourself with the truth of who you are in Jesus. How do you abstain from sin? Arm yourself with the knowledge that Jesus died for you. You are a new creation. You are loved more than you could ever imagine. Arm yourself with it. Carry it. Believe it. Don't just say it, but arm yourself with it. If somebody says you're lazy, and you're a Christian, do you immediately think, oh man, that's exactly what my mom and dad told me when I was growing up. And it wrecks you. Or do you say, you know what? Maybe I am. But you know what? I'm much worse than just being lazy. I'm a sinner through and through. But man, my God, God has called me to incredible purpose more than I could ever imagine. And he empowers me in ways that I can't even believe. So I can take any tact you give me. I'm armed. Guys, how do you arm yourself? Guys, it's an actual discipline. This is a discipline. It's, it's the act of, you guys know a shield and a sword is what it meant when they say arm yourself. Putting on armor is what it meant when it says arm yourself. These are heavy pieces of equipment, right? But it's worth it because it protects you when the fiery darts come, when the arrows come. Your armor, your shield, it protects you. When you're fighting a war, it might be heavy, but you know, you're so glad that you spent all those times marching wearing it, practicing and training, because when the attacks come, you're ready for it, right? How do you arm yourself? It's by diving into the scripture, letting the truth of who you are, arming yourself with the word every day, practice weaving it. Guys, can I tell you very practically, dive into the word of God. And as you dive into the word of God, ask yourself these questions. He says, why has God shown me this today? God, what are you teaching me through this? Why am I reading this? Why do I need this? What are some of the lies that I'm believing that this is contradicting? What are the truths that I should be arming myself with out of this today? What truth should I be putting on today? This is how you're practicing arming yourself. This is how you're getting ready for when the attacks come. As you dive into scripture, it says, God, who are you revealing again who I am in this? What truths are you telling me? What, what armor are you having me put on today? Guys, how do we abstain from sin? How do we abstain from the ways that everybody else in the world looks? Guys, I want you to know this, the list of sin that they mentioned on here. Oh, let me get back to here. The list of sin they mentioned here is living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is not a comprehensive list. This is just a list that was evident in the culture of the time, kind of the Roman excess parties. And this idea of whatever these excess sins are, it's the things that separate you from the will of God. It's these things that, that uh, take away and distract you from the mission God's placed upon you, the identity that he's given you. It is the things that the world does to find satisfaction, happiness, their meaning, 
It's the idols that they chase after. And don't we see often so, so many of the similar idols of today in our, in our culture, in the world we live in now? How do we abstain from that? How do we look different when everybody else seeks their passions in wealth and in fame and in hedonistic pursuits and hookup culture and fame, fame on, on celebrityness or whatever it may be? How do we look different from materialism and greed? We abstain from sin, but how do we do that? By arming ourselves first, by arming ourselves with the truth of the gospel. Two, how do we abstain from sin? We remember eternity. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that through though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Your belief in the resurrection should cause you to live in a way to do things with your life that is baffling. Jeff um, asked a question at small group. He said, what would you do um, if, you only had, if you knew you only had a week left to live? What would you do with your life? What's worth doing in a life that has eternity at stake? This verse is confusing at first, right? Let me tell you first what this verse doesn't mean. This verse does not mean that someone went and preached the gospel to people after they were dead, and they all got a second chance. That's not what this verse means. That would be against the point of the passage. Peter's whole point is to tell that these people not to indulge in the, in the lust of the flesh. He's not telling them, don't worry, if you, if you sin a bunch, you'll have a second chance after you die. He's, he's being clear that the point of this passage is that the gospel was preached to people who are now dead, when they were alive. The gospel was preached to them when they were alive, but they are dead now. And even though they died often in poverty and under extreme persecution like Jesus did, they now live like God did. Peter says, do you think they are glad now that they live that way? In other words, he's saying nobody in eternity literally is glad that they sinned more. Nobody's glad that they indulged more. He's telling them, think about the people that are dead and live in light of that. Psalm 90.12 says this, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to learn wisdom. One of Martin Luther's favorite texts, our lives are a short time, a brief, brief stint in eternity. Live for eternity. Don't live like this is all we have. That's what we often do, right? We often live as if this brief life on earth we can promote it. We can preach it all the time, right? We speak about it all the time. We say, oh, heaven is going to be so much greater, and we talk about eternity and forever. But honestly, most of us, our lives don't live up to what we speak. We live often as this is the end all. But if you live with eternity in mind, if you truly understood what it is that you're speaking, that if you had, uh, LaFrancis Chan had this great illustration of eternity where he had this rope that just went forever outside of his church and he had a little bit that was covered in tape. He says, this is your life in light of eternity. This little bit. Yet we live completely for this little bit instead of this incredible vast amount of time. Can I tell you, there are people that we can look at in history and say they lived with a view of eternity. We look at martyrs of our faith, great heroes that came before. We can look at Hebrews 11 and see the hall of faith, if you will. We can look at people who said, because my life is about eternity, because eternity has so much more at stake, I will give this brief life in pursuit of what God has called me to do. Guys, can I tell you this? 
There's so much. This is what I think a lot of people dislike about Christians, just to be honest with you. Is there's so much that Christians will speak and teach, but they don't live like. Right? One, that's our own sinfulness, and we admit that and we acknowledge that. But other part of it, guys, I want you to understand is sometimes we don't understand really what we're speaking and teaching. This is not our end. This life is not all we have. We have eternity at stake. And if eternity is at stake, how should we live now? If eternity is real, how should we live now? That's what Peter is saying in this text. He's saying, guys, if you knew eternity was at stake, you knew that those who are dead now or living now, dead then, God, if you knew what was going on, if you knew that they could look back and say, why didn't you? I would have wasted my life on that. One of my favorite sermons I've ever heard, I was, gosh, I think I was a freshman in college or a sophomore in college, something like that. I heard John Piper give a talk. And this talk is what he, I think it's titled Don't Waste Your Life. I think he wrote it into a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And I remember sitting there listening to him talking. I was at the field of like 100,000 people in Tennessee. It was one day, is what it was. It was that one day. And I remember being there. And in this talk, he talked about um, the kind of the living the American dream. And he says, he made up these names. Susie and Bill, living the American dream, they retired really early, they're playing shuffleboard, and they're collecting seashells every day. And he said, you know, that, that's the dream. That's what people say, that's the American dream. And, and John Piper said, compared it to another story, that these two women who were in their 80s, one was a doctor, one was a nurse, and they left everything, went to another country, shared the gospel, and while there, they died tragically, is what it said, in a car accident. And the word was, what a tragedy. And I remember John Piper, this is kind of a higher, kind of screechy almost voice. (laughs) I remember he goes, that's a tragedy? He says, that's glory. He said, that's not a tragedy. That they ran the race well and they finished it well. You know, he said, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. Is one day showing up in front of St. Peter and going up to heaven and saying, hey, well, how'd you run your race? How'd you finish your race? What'd you do with your life? And saying, Look at my shell collection. Guys, living in light of eternity literally means what is of true value. Treasures in heaven or treasures on this earth. Is our life truly, do we really believe our life is brief? It's a small stint and there's eternity before us. Can we live in light of that? Not waste our lives, but instead live it with purpose for the eternity that God has promised us. Because there are others want to hear about and need to hear about the eternity before them for the fullness of their joy and for the glory of God see when we live in light of eternity when we remember eternity that helps us to abstain from sin because we know that sin is not worth it in light of eternity amen last we remember that the end is imminent it says in verse 7 the end of all things at a hand Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Two things are imminent, your death and the return of Christ. It can happen at any moment, and that should change the way you live. Now, you might say, well, Lawrence, didn't you say the end was imminent? Started, started saying that 2,000 years ago. You know, I mean, honestly, this was written like 2,000 years ago. The end was imminent then, so it hasn't happened yet. So do we still have another 2,000 years? What Peter's 
what Peter thought was that return was imminent. But many verses like this, it's not saying that the apostles were wrong, but, we, but what was speak, being spoken was that Jesus was calling his disciples to live because they don't know when the end is. Because we talked about how long eternity is, and in light of eternity, the end being imminent is truth. And the reality is Jesus said himself that we have no idea the date and time that he's coming back. We don't know the date and time that we're dying. Not a single one of us. So the end is always imminent for all of us. How are you living in light of that? It says, in the light of this, be sober. You know, in the light of the, the end and coming, live soberly. Live with your priorities straight. Sober people live with the right thought. Sober-minded people, it's not, it's not about it, it, live in such a manner that they know what's right, what's, what to go for. When you're drunk and you're, you have no control of what your priorities are, you make mistakes. Grasping the closest of the end is what leads to this, this question, what leads to making the right decisions and priorities in your life. Back to, this is where I skipped up here. Listen, I messed up with my question that Jeff asked. This is where I meant it to be. But the question Jeff asked at small group is, if you only had a week left with your life, what would you do? If that's all you had left, and I know a lot of people might say something like, well, you know, I'd open a lot of credit cards and just go nuts. And maybe that's you. And that's true. Can I just tell you that? If that would be absolutely 100% what I would do, that would be like I would open up a ton of credit cards and just party it up hardcore if I only knew I had a week left, if there was no eternity. Do you hear me? If there was no resurrection, if there was no eternity, that's exactly what I would do if I had a week left in my life. Open up every credit card and just party away. But because I believe there is eternity, because I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, because I believe in the gospel, if I knew I had a week left in my life, what would I do, honestly? Everybody I loved, plead with them to hear the gospel. Why? Because you live in a manner that abstains from sin because in doing that, it shows that your life is crazy, your life is different. There has to be a reason for that. There has to be a reason for it. There's an illustration Pascal gives of barreling towards a cliff. Distracting yourself with scenery doesn't make much sense that if you're in a car and it's barreling towards a cliff and you know it's going there. You've lost all brakes, you lost all control, you lost all function of the car. And as you're going towards a cliff and you know that it's coming, you're not gonna be worried about, oh, look how beautiful the scenery is. You look, oh, what's going on over here? Instead, you're going to be like, I got to do something about this cliff. I got to do something about what's happening here. I got to do something about this thing, that situation that's imminent. Guys, what it's saying is that as we're barreling towards death, we know his return's imminent. We know our death is coming at some point. What are we doing with our lives? Because in that situation, your bank statements are meaningless. Where you sit in an organizational chart doesn't, chart doesn't seem to matter as much, does it? Whether or not you were slighted or whether or not you saw that play or whether or not you went to that trip, all that stuff seems a little more meaningless, doesn't it? In light of eternity and in light of your imminent death and Jesus' return. What are we doing? What are we doing with our lives? Can we be sober-minded and put the right things first? We abstain from sin. And this is what we do with that, after that. The second way your life looks crazy to the world is the way you love and use your gifts completely. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
as each has received a gift, used to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever one speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. First, this is how we, this is how we live as crazy people. First, we keep loving. This idea of loving one another, guys, was the secret power of the church. Do you guys know that? This idea of keep on loving one another is the secret power of the church. Jesus said that they will know we are his disciples by our love. That has been the trademark of true believers since the beginning. They loved so well that they looked crazy. They loved so much that they were the ones who ran into the plague-infested areas. They loved so much that they embraced pain and suffering for the sake of others. They loved so much that they looked past race and ethnic divides. Their love covered a multitude of sins. Can we say that this is what we need now, isn't it? To just keep loving. Guys, can I also say this with loving? It's easy to say, I love you, right? It's easy to say, well, I feel love for you. But love is so often, and I say this often in one of my, my wedding sermons that I give, or my wedding messages, love has become a cheap word, right? You can use the same word for I love my, my new golf club, or I love that new meal that I ate, or I love, I, you just, love goes for everything, doesn't it? The type of love that they're talking about here is a love that's sacrificial, a love that is choice, that is action. A love that says, I choose to be with you, I choose to love you, I choose to stand with you, I choose to suffer with you. A love that says, this is what I choose, this is my action, this is my emotion, my word in action. Not a thing that I just happen to feel. Because can we be honest with each other, not all the time are we going to love each other, if it's a matter of feeling, is it? There are going to be times where I'm like, man, David, I don't really love you right now. I'm so sorry, David. I just saw you over there. <laughs> Isn't it like that true with, in marriages, right? There are times when my wife probably looks at me and be like, oh my gosh, what did you just break and what did you just do? And I'm not really overwhelmed with feelings of love, emotion for you right now. But what I know without a shadow of doubt in my mind is that my wife will choose to love me. Just like I will choose to love her. Guys, can I tell you this? Love is not just an overwhelming emotion that you get in the enjoyment of something. Love is a choice. And in this, as we choose to keep loving each other, we're choosing to show the world something totally different that makes us crazy. So even when you sin against me, even when you treat me poorly, even if you make me suffer, I'm going to choose to keep loving you. And you're going to choose to keep loving us. And if we can do that first in the church... We show the world something crazy. And then we can start doing it to the world. We show the something, world something revolutionary. This is what Jesus chose. He chose to love when we had nothing we had nothing that deserved to be loved. He chose to love when we wanted nothing to do with him. He chose to love while we were enemies of his. He chose to love in such a manner that he came and he died upon the cross. He took the sin, your sin, the sin of the world upon himself. He chose to love so that you can have a right relationship with God our Father where true justice can meet true mercy. He chose to love. 
And you can understand and you can receive that love because he first chose to love you. It is yours as a free gift. And because he loved like that, that is our calling to love. Can we love like that? Modeling the love of Jesus Christ so that the world looks at us and says, you guys are crazy. I don't get it. Two, we show hospitality. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Andrew Arterbury says this, the disciples repeatedly focuses on the ancient practice of hospitality. The custom of welcoming travelers or strangers into one's home while committing to provide them with protection and provisions. This custom functions as an effective bridge for evangelism and the unification of the early church. That, yet this custom is not a one-sided ministry for Jesus' disciples. They are called to be both exemplary hosts and exemplary guests as they carry out the ministry of Jesus in word and deed. Hospitality establishes a true interdependent and reciprocal relationship that requires disciples, whether they are hosts or guests, to view the stranger as a valuable child of God. Guys, we're called to love, but we're also called to be hospitable. To view the stranger. Can I just say this? This is why I think the world looks at you guys here at Waypoint Church and thinks you guys are crazy already. You guys have been so hospitable. This is what we as a church have done, right? We, we, we welcome the stranger, the refugee, the marginalized. We welcome them. That's what we do. And this is what Peter is saying, keep on doing. But can I tell you guys, yes, I'm so happy that we do this, but let's go even more. Let's be even crazier looking to the world. Let's open our hearts, open our homes, open our resources, open our passions, open our emotions, open our lives to even more strangers. Guys, can, can, do you hear that? This is not just like a maybe you should do this. This is the Bible says do this. Do you get that? This is not just one of those like, I wish Christians could understand the practice of hospitality is something that God says for every Christian to practice. This is not just, well, maybe you should do it because I, you know. We're called to live in this, and it makes the world think we're crazy. Three, we're each called to use our gift. If each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God's grace, guys, and I want you to hear this for yourself and every one and one of us, is his gifts and grace on earth is varied in the individual gifts that we have. You need to take that seriously. This is how God works. God does not give the same giftings, the same talents, the same passions, exactly the same callings to everybody. He actually gives the same one calling, it's to make disciples. But the way he uses you could be totally different. And we're all called to say, what are we doing with the gifts God's given us? We read the parable of the talents before. And God is going to look at you one day. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Are you using the gifts that God's given you? Not coveting other people's gifts, but the gifts that God's given you. Guys, I want you to understand this, that he made you exactly the way you are, your unique characteristics, whether it's emotional, whether it's uh, personality, whether it's callings or giftings, whatever it may be, he's given that to you for a reason. Some of you might hate the fact that God has made you more prone to depression. There are some of you in this place who hate the fact that God's made you a little more prone to melancholy, more prone to deep feelings. Can I tell you something? I truly believe this. When you're walking in the, the power of the Spirit in that, that is a 
gift because you're able to relate with others who are hurting in such a better way. That is a gift because you're able to speak and to understand truth in a better way that changes even your understanding. You're able to show people that when you arm yourself with God, that you can overcome even negative emotions, but you can also show people that the depth of emotion is beautiful. I always say my wife Gina is one of those people. She's one of those, and she'd be okay with me saying that she's more prone to melancholy. But can I tell you some of the most beautiful songs she ever writes comes from that place, right? Some of the most beautiful poetry. I, King David, I believe, is one of those people, right? King David in the Bible is one of those people who is, who is prone to that way, prone to that side, and look at the beautiful psalms that he wrote. Some of you, in, in my case, so I kind of wish that I wasn't always like going a million miles at a time and my mind wasn't like, I wish I could focus a little better. You know, like I'm always like, I want to do a million things at once. I have a million ideas going on and I speak really fast. I get it. I do. And I wish I wasn't like that. I wish I could have a little more focus on one thing and able to sit down and just get it done. But God has made me in my ways and in my giftings, my unique way he made me for purpose of furthering his kingdom. Can I say this, guys? We need each other. Whatever your gifting is, whatever the way God's uniquely shaped you, he's shaped you. He's made you beautiful the way you are. It was intentional. It wasn't an accident. He's made you beautiful so that together, man, we are one beautiful, functioning organism, one beautiful, functioning body that changes the world and advances the kingdom. Share your gifts. Go through this last part real quickly. Speak, whoever speaks, speak as if you're speaking the oracles of God. Serve, whoever's serving. Guys, take seriously the fact that you're called to speak into truth into each other's life. It's not just me that's called to speak. Can I tell you that right now? And some of the most profound words you'll probably ever hear will never come from a preacher, but it might come from your best friend who's speaking scripture to you. It might never come from a pastor, but it might come from your small group leader. Or it might come from somebody who, in your new member class or, or, or your small group. And they share with you a profound thought. Guys, speak as if you're speaking the very oracles of God. That's what we've been gifted with. The Holy Spirit is in every one of you that accepted Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit speaks. Will you open your mouth and let the Holy Spirit speak? And will you listen? And then will you serve? Serve with the strength that God supplies. Serve seriously. Serve as if the end is near. Serve in light of eternity. And love well. Guys, the world needs us to live crazy lives. Because the world is looking for hope. Just as we were, as we watched news, just as I was earlier, I need hope. Guys, I see it in you. Will you show the world what crazy lives look like so that they can have hope? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, God, may we arm ourselves with the gospel. God, may we arm ourselves with the truth. God, that we are far worse than we can even imagine, but God, you love us more than we could ever hope for. God, that with the truth, God, that we can, as we abstain from sin and as we live in love and using our gifts, God, that we show the world that this is crazy, that we're crazy people, but in this craziness shows that we're bizarre. This craziness shows that our home is not here. This is not the end, but there is a kingdom coming. 
where crazy is reality. Where Einstein says, the things that drives me hazy is, am I or them crazy? Well, we're saying right now that we're not the crazy ones, but we want the world who is crazy, who lives with a whole totally different crazy set of ideals and perspective, that they're the crazy ones. God, may they see in our craziness how the reality of the world that they're called to live in. Use us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You said.